Good morning. Good morning. Let me add my welcome to Sean's this morning. I, I do a very mean cha-cha-cha slide, so if you are in the vicinity, watch out. I take no prisoners with my arms and my legs. Uh, let me, on a serious note, uh, thank you all uh, for your continued prayers, particularly for Pastor Ron and I as we preach. Um, this is obviously not our primary calling, and, and yet we, uh, we want to be fed as you want to be fed, and so we thank you for the ways that you are praying for us as we study and as we, as we preach, and we are praying fervently uh, for the search committee to be able to do their work in a timely way. Our timetables, of course, aren't God's, but we would love a faster timetable so that God's man might uh, become the next senior pastor. But thank you for the ways that you are praying for us, the ways you're lifting us up, for the notes, the encouragement. They really do mean a lot. Well, if you've got your Bible, let me invite you to turn uh, with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, and we are still early in our study of John's gospel. Last week, we, we looked at chapter 2, because you see we're going by a, cha- a new chapter every single week. And last, uh, last week, chapter 2, we, we see Jesus' first recorded miracle. That's, of course, the transformation of water into wine at a wedding feast. And I don't know, there's something beautifully redemptive to me about this miracle. Ha- halfway through this week-long community wedding feast, the wine runs out. Now, we're not told why it runs out. It's possible that they may have underestimated the number of guests that, that would have been coming. It's possible they didn't have the resources to provide a sufficient quantity. It's also possible that there are those who are drinking more um, than their fair share. We're not sure why the wine ran out, but it did. And yet what we do know is that the bridegroom and his family will surely face shame and humiliation for letting their wine run out. In fact, the community would likely remember this for the rest of their life. Yet Jesus spared this family from their shame and gave them an amazing wedding gift. A gift that would keep the celebration going several more days later until it was complete. Jesus commanded that water be poured into six 30-gallon jars. These jars were for the family's purification rites. And as servants filled the jars with water, Jesus miraculously transformed the water in those jars into wine. Now, I I was curious about how much we're talking about. So let me put this into perspective in our day and age. It would have been as if Jesus brought 900 bottles of wine to the wedding party. And not just any wine, but vintage wine. The best wine that any of them had ever had at a wedding feast. This would be the talk of the town for the rest of their lives. But this miracle was more than a show of power. It was more than a desire to bless. It was a sign. But a sign of what? It was a sign pointing to a greater wedding feast. The heavenly wedding feast celebrating the union of Christ to His bride, the church, us. It's a sign of the abundant life found in the coming kingdom of God which Jesus is inaugurating. And yet Jesus isn't only interested in transforming water into wine at a wedding feast. 
No, as we'll see in our text this morning, he's also interested in transforming sinners into saints, unbelievers into believers. He's looking to transform our lives now, not just in the future. He wants to bring about that change into your life and into my life. The question that John asks us this morning is, will we receive it? Let's turn to our text now, John 3, beginning in verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray. Father, I would ask that the meditation of my heart and my mind and my lips would be pleasing unto your sight and that it would edify the body of Christ. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You probably know this, but we are a society that values endorsement. I think there's something about that that's maybe hardwired into our DNA And yet I think that there are other ways this is often thrust upon us by politicians or universities or manufacturers, just to name a few. They know that we value the opinion of critics and experts. And if they can get those individuals to endorse what they're selling, they know we'll bite. Now this is certainly true in the world of books. I get regular emails and catalogs from publishers and authors touting their latest book. There are literally hundreds of titles to choose from in any given month. And authors and publishers know this. And so what do they do? Well, they get their books endorsed by similar authors or other respected leaders. You see, they know that I'm more apt to buy a book on, say, preaching if Tim Keller or Brian Chappell or Kent Hughes has endorsed it. Now, while authors and politicians and manufacturers make use of endorsements, Jesus does not. At least not from men. Now, I say not from men because He welcomed His Father's endorsement in Matthew 17. It was during Jesus' transfiguration that God spoke to Him and His disciples. He said, This is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Uh, That's an endorsement Jesus welcomed. Yet Jesus didn't want or need the endorsement of man. We read at the very end of chapter 2 that Jesus' miraculous signs were causing some to believe. Some of those who began to believe were people of significance, people of influence and credibility. Some were even religious leaders. These were the kind of people that could lend credibility to Jesus' message. They had influence in certain areas where Jesus did not. If Jesus would just get behind them, 
we could do wonders with your message. But Jesus would not entrust himself to such endorsers. He knew all too well what was in man. He knew the state of their heart. He knew that they were captivated by the miraculous signs that he had performed. He knew they didn't fully understand who he was or what he had come to do. And so Jesus states plainly in verse 17 what he has come to do and who has sent him to do it. For God did not send his son into the world, he writes in verse 17, to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus underscores the nature of his mission to the world. It was to be a rescue mission. He hadn't come to condemn the world for their sin. He had come to save the world from their sin. He's come on a mission of divine mercy and not a mission of divine judgment, at least not yet. Now I want you to think for a second. Who would be ecstatic for that kind of salvation? Who would welcome that kind of mercy and see it as good news? Well, of course, those who knew they were guilty of sin and condemned by it. Those who knew they were under judgment and facing a death sentence. For them to receive such salvation would, of course, be good news. So who wouldn't this be good news for? Well, for those who are either blinded to the truth of their sin or the truth that Jesus is that Savior for their sin. This is the reality in the world to which Jesus has come. The world neither wanted to be saved nor was aware that they needed to be saved. Jesus states in verse 19, and this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil, or we might say corrupted. And in one sense, he is principally describing all of us. We all loved the darkness rather than the light. And as Sean has already mentioned, we have both of our original parents, Adam and Eve, to thank for that. Because of their act of rebellion, it produced a perpetual offspring that was marred by sin. My friends, our original sin is not an anomaly. It's not an arbitrary thing. It it doesn't skip generation. It is unavoidable. If you are born into this world, you are born with a sin nature. And when that sin nature is awakened, you not only begin to sin, you begin to like to sin. Eventually you begin to love to sin. Popular theologian Michael Horton once said at a conference I attended that we are children of Adam... And we love it that way. I find it fascinating, actually, that Jesus would use the word agape when referring to those who love the darkness. And you might know that there are four words in New Testament Greek that define love. There is, of course, eros, which is used to describe romantic love between, say, a husband and a wife. There is philia, which is used to describe brotherly love or friendship love. There is storge that is used to describe familial love between parents and their children. And then finally there is agape love, which is used to describe the the love that God has for His people. It's a pure and sacrificial kind of love. 
It's a self-sacrificing, self-giving kind of love. And so to use agape to describe those who, who love the darkness seems odd unless you consider this. Those who love the darkness exercise a kind of sacrificial love. They give themselves over to their loves. They, they will stop at nothing to pursue their treasure. The problem, Jesus says, is that their loves, they're corrupted. When does the love get corrupted? Well, when it is not used in the way that it was intended. It is taking one of God's wonderful and good creations, like food and like love and like work and like time, and making it ultimate in our life. They become the things that we live for, the things that give us meaning and purpose in life, that give us a sense of feeling successful. Well, how do we know if that's true of us? Well, we might say things like this. If only I could be married, then my life would be complete and good. If only I could make this much money, then my life would be fulfilled. If only I could get this job, then I would really know that I am successful. These are all good things. But when we make them ultimate things in our life, they become our God. We live for them. We become defined by them. We give them power so that when, they, when we lose those idols, our lives feel like they are over. We realize that we never really possessed those loves, but instead those loves possessed us. If you've read The Lord of the Rings or you've seen the movie, you may know how the creature Gollum came to be. He was once a hobbit like Frodo and his friends um, and went by the name Smeagol. And on his birthday, he went fishing with his relative Deagle. And while they were fishing in the river, Deagle stumbled across a ring. The ring that would rule all others. Smeagol saw the ring and wanted it for himself. And he asked Deagle to give it to him as a birthday present. When Deagle refused, Smeagol killed him that he might have the ring. He finally now possesses his greatest treasure, which he would eventually call his precious. Yet he no long, yet the, the longer he possessed it, the more he realized that it possessed him. It not only began to change his behavior, it also even began to change his appearance so that he became the hideous monster, Gollum. That's what corrupted loves do. We think that we are possessing them while all along, They are possessing us. J.R.R. Tolkien's friend C.S. Lewis painted a similar picture in his book, The Screwtape Letters. He wrote this, Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it, while really it is finding its place in him. This is the heart of idolatry. It's placing anything, including a good thing, above God of making it the the ultimate thing in our life. It's giving oneself in worship to an inferior God who is not only powerless to help us or to save us, but who also will control and enslave us. As Jesus confronts the 
corrupt loves of the world. The world instinctively hides. Jesus says in verse 20, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. The world conceals its work for fear of having those loves exposed and taken away. The world fears the light of Christ revealing the true nature of their hearts. And we often can fear that too, can't we? In a former church I served in, there was an older woman who loved to send notes to the pastors. I wish they were the encouraging kind of notes that you all send to us, but they were not. They were often passive-aggressive attempts to enlighten our minds over issues that she felt like we were, as pastors, missing the boat on. I was amused at first, but as then as they continued to come, I became wearied and then I became annoyed. And when I, none of the other pastors were saying anything or responding, I fired off an email to ask them, who does she think that she is and why does she keep sending us these emails? And so I hit reply all and I asked them. I hit reply all and I asked them. Not one minute later, one of the other pastors came to me and asked me if I meant to hit reply all. I thought that was an odd question and said, of course I meant to send it to all you pastors. Even Ruby? That's not her name. And then it hit me square between the eyes. The blood rushed out of me as I realized what I had done. She was one of the recipients of my email. My thoughts were exposed. My heart was laid bare before her. And all I wanted to do was hide. There was no hole deep enough that I could find to hide in. And so I quickly called her on the phone, but it was busy. Young people, phones were busy back in the day. (laughs) Unintentionally dating myself. And so I sent her an email, which is ironic in and of itself. I dreaded her call. And yet when it came, she was gracious. She sought to save me from my guilt and my shame. And thankfully, the Lord used it as... An opportunity for us to get to know one another. But oh, oh how that hurt. Having your sin exposed before you is painful and it makes you want to run away. But I tell you there is something worse than having your sin exposed. It's not having your sin exposed. I think one of the most tragic things that could ever happen to anyone is for Jesus not to confront our corrupt loves to let us get away with our sin, to not experience sin's conviction or the consequences would be disastrous. Why? Well, you see, the longer we go without being exposed, the stronger our corrupt loves become, the stronger the hold it has on our life. And left to themselves, these corrupt loves will eventually cause us to reject Christ. And because of our unbelief, he says, we will experience the full condemnation our sins deserve. But this is actually not the only darkness that Jesus is talking about here. It's not just the irreligious that are in the dark. The religious are also in the dark. We see that clearly in Nicodemus, whose story we find in the first part of John 3. 
I think Nicodemus was probably one of those endorsers of Jesus who saw what he had done and said and wanted to, to be a part of his witness. He had certainly seen all the signs that, Jerus- that Jesus had done in Jerusalem and, and had heard about other signs done elsewhere. He knew that Jesus was different. He even knew, I think, that he was special. Notice the compliment that he gives Jesus in verse 2. Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, I think Jesus respected Nicodemus because of what he says next. He cuts to the chase and he lovingly exposes his spiritual blindness. He says, Nicodemus, to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again, or more literally, born from above. Nicodemus is in the dark, of course, and he asks Jesus, how on earth is that possible? How can an old man be born again, much less be born into his mother's womb a second time? Jesus responds, no, Nicodemus. I'm not talking about physical birth. I'm talking about spiritual birth. Nicodemus doesn't get it. He has no idea what Jesus is talking about. He and his fellow Pharisees were were blinded to their spiritual condition because of their religion. They had been building their lives on their ability to please God with their life. They devoted themselves to the study of the law. They participated in worship and in prayer. They gave money and they fasted all so that God would accept them. So that God would credit their life with righteousness. But they were blind. Blind to their need of salvation. Blind to the Savior who could bring that salvation. What Jesus is saying here is that you can be very religious and be very lost. You can do all the right things for all the wrong reasons and be far from God. Why? Because religion blinds us from seeing that salvation can only come from God through Christ Jesus. Like Nicodemus, it is easy for us to believe that securing God's love and acceptance is up to us. If that's the case, if that's our, if that's our belief, then we are doubly lost, for it will never be enough. But if we experience a spiritual birth, there is hope. In this spiritual birth, the Holy Spirit works graciously and effectively to open the eyes of our hearts. The work that He does is called regeneration. It is a transition from spiritual death into spiritual life. The prophet Ezekiel described it as taking our hearts of stone and replacing them with a heart of flesh. As the Holy Spirit regenerates our hearts, we are given faith to repent and to believe. And not simply just to repent of our corrupt loves or our corrupt religion, but to believe in the one true Savior. As Jesus says in verse 14, the the Son of Man who was lifted up on the cross that we might have eternal life and security. As that happens, we become lovers 
of the light. We read in verse 21, But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Where we once were lovers of the darkness, we are now lovers of the light. Instead of concealing our sinful works for fear of being exposed, we reveal His work in us without fear of exposure. Why? Because it is His work. It's His work. He is the one who has made us alive in Christ that we might live for Him. Where religion said, Obey and God will love and accept you, Jesus says, You are already beloved by My Father, so therefore obey. Live for Him as His children, as My fellow laborers, as My fellow inheritors. Do you know that you are God's beloved this morning? That you are His beloved not because of your own efforts or work, but through Christ's work? If you know that, it is because the Holy Spirit has opened your eyes and your heart to see that, to realize it. Rejoice, dear brothers and sisters, and live in the light. Live not fearing exposure or condemnation for your sin because Jesus has taken the punishment that your sin deserved and given you His righteousness that He deserved. Perhaps you're here this morning And you're unsure whether you are God's beloved or not. You feel the weight of your religion and the burdens that it places upon you. The constant fear of wondering if you've done enough. Cheer up, my friend. You'll never do enough. Cheer up. Jesus has done enough and has secured the Father's eternal love and life for you through His death and resurrection. Believe in Him. And finally, for those of you who remain lovers of the darkness, know this. Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Yet if you reject Him, if you fail to believe in Him and the salvation that He offers, He says that you stand condemned. My friend, do not harden your hearts to Jesus' call. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever would believe in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the life and the light that we have in Christ and because of Christ And because of the Holy Spirit's heart-opening work, would this reality become more and more true in our lives and in our hearts, that we would be transformed so that our community might be transformed through us. And for those, Father, who are far from You, O God, do not let them perish. Open the eyes of their heart that they might see and believe the One who loves them who has come to set them free. Do that, we pray, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.